Welcome to the latest edition of the Moses and Methuselah weekly podcast. My name is Jonathan Davis, and each week I sit down with my battle-scarred but indomitably optimistic investment manager friend Peter Silent to chew over the latest developments in the markets and debate what they might mean for governments, investors and taxpayers. Good morning, Peter. Uh, it's the year 2020, as we know very well, and by chance we've been looking this week at... Uh, Looking back to the year 2000, the millennium, when uh, so happened was the peak of a extraordinary bull market that you and I both remember very well. Uh, but it's been very interesting to look at what's happened to the markets and some of the stocks in the big indices uh, since that peak in the market in twenty in the year 2000. Um, because it tells us a lot about what investing in the stock market is really about as opposed to what a lot of people seem to think it is about, which is buying and selling, trading, going in and out, getting a good bargain here, getting a good bargain there. But actually, for the long-term investor, it's a rather different story, isn't it? As it should be, Jonathan. Good morning. As it should be, because you don't, as we discussed two weeks ago, or you shouldn't buy a share simply because you buy the share. You're buying a share of a business, and the business is a going concern, hopefully a growing one, and therefore the underlying business is much more important than the piece of paper that documents the fact that you own some of it, and less important is also what the price that the market attributes to that piece of paper is on a daily basis and how it fluctuates. I'm glad you started this discussion around the year 2000, because the year 2000 marked a very important moment when interest rates more or less went down to zero, broadly speaking, broadly speaking, spent the last 20 years at a zero-ish level, broadly speaking, and the disinflationary and the deflationary era started, and therefore the whole way that business was conducted started to change, whereas heavy industry businesses made way, gave way to light industry, what I call cyber businesses, which developed a lot. So you can see that in the individual components of these markets over this period of time. Yes, it's very interesting to look at those. I mean, the winners and the losers since that period, we went, we've obviously, uh, of course, this is not new. There's been, you know, changing patterns in, uh, in the performance of companies and of sectors and everything else. But the uh, I think the point you're making is that the secular decline in interest rates has actually, in a sense, almost magnified and accelerated the process because it's actually rewarded um, the, the better companies more perhaps than the uh, than the than your average uh, corporate. Um, well, why don't we look at who's who's done well since the uh, since the year 2000? Now, what we did was we went back and we looked at um, we we looked at the figures of the best performing uh, stocks. Uh, since that date, since uh, the middle of two, 2000. Um, and, <clears throat> but of course, that excludes all the companies that have actually gone bust since then or disappeared altogether, which there, so there is some survivorship bias here. So we're looking at the ones that have prospered. And of those that have done less, you know, the, done the worst in the index today, uh, obviously have survived. So they're not the worst overall, but the absolute worst, because there will be some companies that disappeared altogether. Uh, but there is extraordinary divergence in performance over that period. And it's interesting to look at them uh, and to see whether, you know, in the year 2000, whether you would have imagined 
who would be in the bottom half of that uh, league table and who would be in the top. Uh, so why don't you uh, tell us about what your what you make of the uh, of the list for the uh, for the S and P five hundred first of all? I think it contains the losers contains a solid chunk of what I call the usual suspects, which one should probably avoid in order to avoid what I call suffering a permanent loss of capital. And the best ones have been the innovators, the creative destroyers, and the disruptors. And as I said before, the losers are and have been victims either of heavy capital expenditure or of a disintermediation process. Look at the FTSE, for example. I think I spotted that the worst investment was the Royal Bank of Scotland. If you bought a share in that bank 20 years ago, today you would have lost 92% of your money, not to mention the opportunity cost of not being invested somewhere else. Now, investing such that you lose 92% of your money over 20 years is more or less the same as if the company went bankrupt. I mean, you may as well have lost all your money. And looking at the losers, for example, in the FTSE index, again, it's these services which have been superseded by new, more efficient services, whether it's banking, the banking system is being disintermediated, the traditional telecoms, for example, the insurance businesses, which are also being, to a certain extent, disintermediated, and all those businesses whose returns on invested capital are low to mediocre and therefore reflected in the share price. Yes, and it's, but it's worth reflecting on the fact, I think, that uh, if you look at the, uh, the FTSE uh, in the UK, for example, down the bottom you've got, uh, you've got a company like Vodafone, which was once the, uh, the largest uh, listed company in the, whole, in the whole UK market. It's had a, you know, and at the time it was actually a, a leader in its uh, particular field of mobile phones, uh, but it's not been able to consolidate that position. It's been, if you like, taken out by, uh, by both the changes in the world itself, in the, in, in the technology, uh, and in the way that uh, mobile phones are used, but also by, by, as you say, by other competitors coming along who are smarter and uh, do things more efficiently. Um, and of course, if you look at the winners as well, there's some there's some surprises there as well as uh, <clears throat> as well as some names you'd expect to see. I mean, again, looking at the uh, at the UK market, for example, and looking at the US market first of all, no surprise to see uh, Netflix up there uh, because that's obviously you know very much been a, a fast, rapidly growing business, taking advantage of streaming. Um, uh, but in the UK, you've got things like Flutter, which is basically a bookmaking uh, company. Uh, and that's been a direct product of the technology uh, change that's allowed people to, to gamble online effectively. And there's been a lot of that both in financial markets and in sport. Uh, and it's been um, uh, an extraordinary ride with them. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that the English mentality, in the English mentality, the idea of a flutter or of gambling, whether it's on horses or anything else, is much more predominant than in other countries. If you look at the amount of money that the average English consumer spends, or as a group, that is spent on gambling every week, 
it, it literally goes into the hundreds of billions, or certainly per annum. So I think it doesn't surprise me that this company happens to be in the UK, because I don't think you'd find it in other countries, certainly not in other, in other countries around Europe. Um, but yes, I, I, I suppose there are surprises in, on both sides, whether it's the winners or the losers, apart from the usual suspects. Of course, there are going to be one or two surprises, and we'll, there will continue to be one or two surprises. And I can imagine that during the COVID lockdown, there was a higher propensity to not only on these on these day trading platforms that we discussed a few weeks ago when we asked ourselves how important these new young day traders are. But of course, by extension, they will have been doing the same thing in other parts of in other areas where they can where they can gamble. And there's also some interesting common themes that come out. I mean, I think you, you, you're right to mention the UK and gambling. Um, you're better, you know, the European markets better than I do. But I mean, it's be interesting <laughs> reflection. I don't know what one can derive from the fact that in the uh, in the in the French index, for example, we have uh, in the top ten, we've got uh, LVMH, the, the the luxury brands. We've got uh, Hermes, it's a similar, there. and we've got Pernod Ricard, a drinks company. Uh, so I don't know what to, what you might draw, what implication you might draw about the uh, continental lifestyle from that. Can you do anything as uh, as uh, subtle or sophisticated as that, uh, Peter? Well, for instinctively, I'd say that first of all, brands. Everyone knows what Pernod is. Um, everyone knows Louis Vuitton. Everyone knows Hermès. So it's a combination of that superiority in in the quality of these brands. And the French are very good at that. But of course, also don't forget, these are family-run or family-controlled or family-influenced businesses. And we've discussed in the past that businesses that have families behind them, um, families whose generations then, next generation takes over from the previous one, is, is a very powerful, um, let's say, element, not only for quality, but also for growth. And I think that's probably the answer, rather than any difference in um, in, in gambling. But I, I would nonetheless also add that in the UK, one of the reasons why one is prepared not only to lose money, but also one is prepared to um, smile benignly on the neighbour who loses money, is because losing money in England, there's nothing wrong with losing money. Uh, going bankrupt in England will result in your friends and neighbors patting you on the back and saying, better luck next time. That's absolutely not the case on huge parts of the continent where you go into perda if, you've, uh, if, you, if you go into, into bankruptcy and everyone turns their back on you. It's one of the less attractive aspects uh, of the Europeans. But I think that plays a role. Well, that's very interesting, that last comment. I mean, it is true. It is more accepted over here, I think, than um, than in the continent. But, of course, uh, it's uh, not quite the same as it is in the U.S., where they, uh, you know, where, where it uh, going into bankruptcy or Chapter 11 or anything, that is uh, is almost like a kind of way of life rather than uh, <laughs> rather than uh, something a black mark to put against you. Yes, I think that's interesting. I mean, it's, but it's also, you could look at, I mean, I, the other thing that struck me looking at the European ones, I mean, for example, you've got, 
there is a difference between <coughs> success and failure. I mean, you've got Volkswagen, done very well, up 440% over the, over the 20 years, and you've got Renault, which is down 55%, uh, and that uh, must tell us something also about the way that uh, uh, car companies are, uh, shall we say, owned and managed. I mean, Renault has, I, I guess you'd say, suffered quite a lot from being become a kind of plaything of the, uh, of, of the government in France. Uh, and it's been through a lot of changes, trying to keep it alive, strong union pressure and so on, and not just not producing very good cars most of the time. Whereas Volkswagen has been much more successful with all its many brands uh, in, uh, in, in uh, performing very well. Uh, until its recent scandal, of course, it would have done better had it not been for the scandal over emissions. So I don't know whether you could draw any conclusions from that uh, comparison, Peter? I totally agree with you. I would have said exactly the same thing, that the French, well, the French car manufacturers are always the victims of government interference, trade unions, and all these things. Um, then there's the element of management, as you say, and also, above all, as you also say, it's the product itself. You don't have to answer this, but I'll throw open the question into the air. Would you rather, if you could, would you rather buy a German car or a French car? You don't have to answer that. I suspect I know the answer, and I think you know what I prefer. But there is something to be said for German efficiency, or as they say in German, Deutsche Gründlichkeit, and the same thing or the lack of it in France to, to a certain extent. During the global financial crisis, for example, the French car sales dropped within one year by 50%. And that wasn't to do with the fact that anybody was locked down. It had to do with other things. But you're quite right to point out and to ask the question, why are the Germans among the best and the French among the worst in the car area when it's certainly not the case in the luxury good area in France? Yeah, so every country has, it turns out that every country tends to do certain some things better than, than others and whether that's actually did anything to do with national characteristics or just to do with the uh, the structure of the industry itself. You can't all be winners at everything. Uh, I guess that is an interesting question. I mean, I'm quite. A, I'm not ashamed to tell you the answer to your question, Peter, which is that I have, for the last uh, 20 years, I have, like <laughs> an extraordinarily large number of other people in the UK, <coughs> owned a German car, uh, simply because they do appear to be, they're better made and they're better quality and they last better and so on. In my very, when I was a young man, I did uh, my, I think my very first car was a, was a, was a Renault. Uh, and it was a, it was a, I had a bit of fun in it, but it was, uh, uh, it came to an early end when I uh, lifted up the, uh, the, the mat under the driving seat and discovered there was just uh, air coming in underneath <laughs> because the, the quality of the steel it was so thin that it actually worn just worn through. Uh, so I remember that very well. But of course, when in the UK we we're, we're not ones to talk about quality car making uh, in the past. We gave the world British Leyland, and that was not a great. Uh, a great story for many, many years. Um, uh, though, of course, we uh, we now make some very good cars in the UK, but they're actually not they're not owned by British companies. Uh, but that's uh, that's just a long story of uh, going back many years. I think the interesting, I suppose, the interesting question: what we're really talking about here is what we're trying to 
if you like, kind of find our way towards is, you know, what really makes a great company? Uh, uh, that's, that's one question. But secondly, what makes a great company that endures over time? That seems to be a very interesting question, because if you are uh, an ordinary long-term investor, be, I mean, there are, if there are such a things, uh, I would regard myself as one, <clears throat> and most, uh, I think, private investors should regard themselves as long-term investors. What you logically should be looking for is companies you can buy whose shares are going to perform well over a long period of time, so you don't actually have to think very hard about them. You don't have to monitor your portfolio every day and, and worry about whether the price has gone up and down. Um, so I think you put your finger on one uh, important aspect of that, which is the ownership of a company. If a family-owned company, they tend to be interested in the long term. Obviously, a lot of family companies do go wrong. They, uh, the original, the third generation doesn't tend to be very good at managing the business, so they have to outsource it and so on. But a, a, an owner who actually has a genuine long-term interest, and any family will have that, uh, will tend to be a better place to invest for the longer term. I think that's definitely one quality, as you say. Um, and I wonder what others you would, you, would, you would throw into the mix there. If you're looking for a company that's going to actually uh, not only do well you know, over the next uh, two, three years, but actually over the next 20 years, what else would you be looking for, Peter? Well, what I'd be looking for is very much common sense and is not going to surprise you. But then you and I, we know each other well enough and long enough. You know that for me, only the best will do. Why should I go for something mediocre if I can go for the best? And I can go for the best. It's there for the taking. And so these, what I call sort of 10 golden rules of investing, they all have to do with quality and with growth. So you've got to find uh, an industry which is growing at a faster rate than the overall GDP of the country that it's growing in. You've got to find a company with a sustainable competitive advantage. And you've got to find a company that grows organically rather than through acquisition. You've got to find a company that emits huge amounts of free cash flow. And you've got to find a company that shuns probably all debt. And these are but the most obvious ones to which you could then add aspects of governance, which is extremely important. And that's the governance is the area where you find that family companies are they score best. It's governance. It's, it's how you remunerate your employees. Of course, how you treat your employees. What are you going to allocate capital properly? Or are you going to fiddle around with your capital? And so these, for me, are perfectly common sense attributes that every businessman should adopt or have when he runs, when he runs a company. Fairly obvious to me, fairly obvious. And of course, what it does, if you like, as a sort of conclusion, or at least concluding question to this subject, when we look at the winners and the losers over a 20-year period, when you see that over 20 years, the FTSE has gone sideways on balance, I think it does beg the question, well, what is so attractive about exchange-traded funds or ETFs which are all the rage at the moment, on the basis that they're much cheaper than an actively managed investment program. For me, it kills the ETF argument entirely because everyone is free and is ready, able, and willing to find the best attributes and the best companies 
that are run by the best people and then take a long-term view and sit back. Everyone could do it. And indeed, everyone could do it. I've, I mean, I've heard it said that they, uh, this is the extraordinary thing about it. The, the two, well, I make two points. First of all, the number of companies that uh, can meet all those criteria you mentioned are, there's only a very small number of them by definition. They are, uh, they are if you like, the elite. Uh, and and you'd say, you might think, well, actually, they're very difficult to find. I mean, if you're looking for, you know, maybe uh, there's only, you know, 100 or so in, around the world that would meet all your criteria, Peter. But of course, they're all they're all hiding in plain sight because they uh, they tend to be companies that you've heard of. They're out there. They're either big brands or they're companies that you know make good things. I mean, there are very few uh, of the large, very successful companies that you won't have heard of, even if you're you know not particularly interested in in business. So they're hiding in plain sight. And so the uh, the issue is um, why don't more people buy them? Why do they? think that they have to buy index funds or ETFs or whatever it is. Well, I think there's some reasons for that, uh, which you might talk about. But I think the crucial point is that um, it always comes back to this issue of price, doesn't it? People don't buy these companies because they think that they're expensive. Uh, and that seems to be, and they are expensive if you look at in a very simple, through a very simple valuation lens, they tend to be on relatively high PEs. Um, and that's because they're good companies who are making a lot of money and growing, as you say, into the future. Um, but what is it that stops people buying them if, if they are, as I said, they're hiding in plain sight? Usually the answer is that they're too expensive. And so in, potential investors jump to conclusions by looking at a number that they call the price earnings ratio. And they concentrate on those shares with the lowest PE ratios. I would concentrate, and I do concentrate, on those shares with the highest PE ratios rather than the lowest ones. Because companies are cheap for a reason, and they're also expensive for a reason. It's just like a Rolls Royce, which is going to be more expensive than a Fiat for a reason. But going a bit further, if you take the PE ratio number on itself, by itself, that really doesn't tell you very much. It tells you a fraction of the whole story. You've got to look at the other components that conclude, uh, that, that produce a high PE ratio. And these other, other components are things like return on invested capital and incremental return on invested capital and a whole lot of other things. And you'll find that if company A has a PE ratio of 40 times and company B has a PE ratio of 20 times, it certainly would be the wrong conclusion to say, well, I'll buy, obviously, the company that's trading at 20 times or at 10 times because I'm going to make a better return with a lesser risk. It's usually the opposite that is the case. So do you remember when, do you remember the expression reassuringly expensive? I prefer a company that is reassuringly expensive to one that is worryingly cheap. <laughs> Indeed. Um, <clears throat> but there's a corollary to that, isn't there, which is that because this is the stock market where prices are set by uh, supply and demand they, they're not set by the companies themselves no one actually no company actually determines its own price earnings ratio directly anyway uh, so the prices are set by what Ben Graham used to call Mr. Market uh, and Mr. Market can have moods Mr. Market can be can be very moody he can be very depressed one day he can be exhilarated the next uh, and so if this Mr. Market which is a kind of shorthand for the market as a whole uh, is very excited. It will push sometimes the 
price of some of these shares up to very high levels, and then, then they will come down a bit because the P.E. ratio is changing. Uh, and you have to live with that. That's the kind of volatility you have to live with uh, in the price. Uh, but if you are a generally long-term investor, you shouldn't really be worrying about that. Uh, I'm sure you would agree about that. I agree with that completely about that, primarily because what you're interested in is that the growth of the company that you're investing in proceeds in a steady but consistent way. And therefore, the volatility of the share price is a lot less important than the volatility of the underlying earnings trajectory or earnings stream. A volatile earnings stream would cause me a little bit more anxiety than a vol volatile share price. We've discussed this before, of course, and I suspect we will, that volatility, at least in my opinion, does not equate to risk. All it does is it tells you that Mr. Market today has a hangover and Mr. Market tomorrow is euphoric and the day after he has another hangover and that goes on for a week and the result is a ve very volatile stock market as a whole and volatile ingredients. But, you know, the mood swings of the market are a lot less important than what's going on underneath, what's going on in the businesses themselves. Absolutely. And that's, of course, is, brings you on to a second point, which is that uh, way back in the, in the 1960s, we, we were talking about this earlier, Peter, way back in the 60s, there was this group of stocks called the Nifty 50, uh, which, again, were a series of stocks in the, in the bull markets of the 1960s, uh, they went to very high P.E. ratios, and people started talking about them as one-decision stocks. In other words, that you, you bought them and you could hold them for your whole lifetime and you would never be disappointed. But, of course, that isn't quite right, because while the, the very good companies, as you say, will, might well be very expensive on a, on a high P.E. for a good reason, you can't just sit back and do nothing, because you've got to monitor how they're actually performing, as you said, how the earnings are progressing. How, the, how they're doing against new competition, because even the best companies can uh, disappear or, or fall prey to uh, takeover and so on if they take their eye off the ball. So the, the job of the investor who's, who's uh, buying these companies, I think, is to not just to sit back and say, oh, well, I'm, I'm fine now, I've got, a, I've got a Rolls Royce ride for the rest of my life. You do have to actually monitor how they're doing, because all companies do change. The, you know, they, not, all, not all of them stay good forever. Let's put it that way, though some do. Indeed. Another area which produces quite a lot of confusion is when you take the P-E ratio as a standalone metric. And I don't think you can do that because you've got to compare the P-E ratio with the so-called risk-free investment that there is. So, for example, when interest rates are at 10 or 15%, or heading for that, heading for that. And I suspect that when we had this nifty 50 era in the late 60s, I think it was at a time when interest rates were heading up. And so, of course, a high PE number is much more endangered when the direction of interest rates is upwards. That's when you've got to be very careful. But when the cost of money is low and falling, and has been low and falling for 20 years, then you can't make the judgment that a P-E ratio of 20 or 25 is going to be the same as when it's at 
20 or 25 and interest rates are at 10% and then going up to 15%. It's slightly technical, but nonetheless, it's very important. You've got to compare it, compare this uh, to the price of money, which incidentally is one of the reasons why the big picture for me, uh, I'm relatively relaxed about the direction of stock markets in going into the next few months and potentially even years because interest rates are destined to remain low in my opinion. Yes, and if that is the case, then uh, as you say, uh, then that is going to reward uh, companies on IEP ratios. It's not going to do them any harm, as you say. I mean, the other point I thought I, I would just make about this is um, is looking at a point that has been made by uh, by Charlie Munger and by uh, uh, Professor Siegel and other sort of people who pronounce on long-term investing and indeed Terry Smith more recently and yourself. I mean, the interesting thing is that if you look at the uh, if you look at the uh, the actual annualized return that these companies make over long periods of time, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, it is almost very close to the rate of the earnings growth that they achieve and also very similar to the rate of return on the invested capital that they that they make and it's not totally surprising uh, so in other words if you uh, <clears throat> in other words you can't necessarily deduce from a from a p ratio that uh, or from an earnings uh, perspective that a company must decline what you can with some confidence predict is that if it manages to sustain its level of earnings growth for a long period or its return on invested capital at the same level then the kind of return you're going to make uh, over that period of time is going to be broadly very similar to those metrics. And uh, that is uh, just a fact of life. And therefore, the price which you pay at entry point is not necessarily the most important factor in what determines your return over time. Uh, I think you would agree with that, would you not, Peter? Completely. I think that's very interesting, and you've put your finger on it. There is a correlation between the share price and the earnings growth of the underlying business. And the correlation is always visible, especially over the long term, which means that if you buy something at too high a level, then you're going to be, in inverted commas, penalized, maybe sometimes even for years, uh, by the share price. But the underlying business continues to grow year in, year out. And I think McDonald's is a good example because McDonald's was one of the companies in the so-called Nifty 50s at the time. And if you bought at the peak of the market before the 1974 crash, and we've discussed this before, then you by far overpaid on all these companies. But those that survive and still exist today, and if you had kept your shares through thick and thin, then you would see today that there's a correlation between the earnings plus a little bit of dividends and the total return that you as a shareholder have made. And so that very, very much proves the point that, that the stock market in that respect is efficient. It's not efficient in the traditional business school meaning of efficiency, but it is efficient in that sense of the correlation between the earnings growth and the return to the shareholders, as actually you would expect, in my opinion. So I suppose the final point about, you know, there is a reason why a lot of people do buy index funds and, and, and ETFs. So the reasons are slightly different in those two cases, I think. Uh, but that is because 
even though some of these companies may be hiding in plain sight, as we've said, uh, if you don't actually have the ability to uh, buy, uh, to recognize what is a good company, what isn't a good company, though you would have thought it's not that difficult to do that, uh, that uh, if you don't have any if you don't have any skill at picking companies and you and you can't uh, work out what the return on capital is or even what the P ratio is, then you can say there is a case for buying an index fund just to get you some exposure to the uh, the stock market. And over time, you'll do you know about as well as the market overall does. But the point you made at the beginning is that that return may be very disappointing, as it has been in the UK. As you said, the UK, the FTSE is basically just about at the same level it was when uh, in 2000. Obviously, you've had dividends since then, and so you haven't been without a return at all. But uh, you have, uh, <coughs> you have, uh, you can still make some money out of the stock market through uh, through a program of indexing if you don't know what you're, if you don't know how to analyze companies. I think the thing with ETFs is slightly different, though, because when ETFs first came in, it was a great boon for institutional investors because it allowed you to make very quick changes in your asset allocation. In other words, they were easy to buy and sell. You could trade them even more easily in an index fund where you have to wait at least 24 hours to get your exposure. You could actually do it in an ETF sort of in the, in the, in the click of a button. And therefore, if, you had, if there was some event where you actually wanted to adjust your exposure, you know, an unexpected event, you wanted to do something very quickly, an ETF would be quite a good way to do that. But that was how they started. But since then, it's become a completely different game. It's become a... Uh, uh, a way to kind of slice and dice the, the stock market into or any number of different factors. And basically you are basically trading or speculating if you're, if you're trying to pursue investing that way. Uh, I dare say uh, you would agree that I don't suppose you've ever owned an ETF, have you, Peter? No, and I tend to confuse ETFs with index funds. But put yourself in the position, for example, of a German investor. And let's say the German investor decided 20 years ago to buy an index fund in the UK, FTSE index fund. He would have made no money over 20 years, as he might have made a few dividends here and there. But what we're not putting into this equation, and I dread to do so, is what happened to the external value of the pound sterling over the last 20 years. If you put that into the bag, I think it would probably have been one of the worst investments that you could have made. And so that's really the reason why I say that if you can, then you should be a little bit, you know, um, choosy when it comes to making your investments. But I agree that we can't all, not everybody can work out returns on invested capital and PE ratios. It's, it's a very complicated subject. But nonetheless, nonetheless, I am not a friend of index funds or ETFs, and I never had any, and I don't think that I ever will. Well, <laughs> that, about that I'm totally convinced. If nothing else, you, you, I am persuaded that you will never own an index fund or an, or an exchange-traded fund. And why should you when you, uh, when you have your own funds and they've done uh, so well? Of course, that's, uh, that is uh, that I believe you completely well i think that's probably all we've got time for this week it's been a very interesting discussion i think we uh, will keep coming back to this subject because it is very close to our hearts and those of most investors um, we do you know the it, it is fascinating how over time you know the performance of the stock market does deliver some great surprises but also some very reassuring messages if you can find the best companies 
with the high returns on capital, and you can avoid the ones that start off very well and then disintegrate or get taken over because of poor management or, or things like that, or just a change in the world that captures them by surprise, you are going to do very well. And that is the kind of timeless lesson we have to, we have to take away, I think. So very good, Peter. Thank you for this conversation, as always, and look forward to discussing other matters next week. So do I, Jonathan. Many thanks, and have a good weekend. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah Weekly Podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced and available for distribution every Saturday. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels, or by signing up on the Moneymakers or Eminem podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.